Hey, hey, it's GMAC for the Start On Demand. Thanks for downloading, thanks for sharing, and thanks for subscribing. If you subscribe, you'll get this podcast every single day, automatically delivered to you, the device you most prominently and most often listen to podcasts on. So just click that subscribe button and that'll take all the worry away and we'll send you out every morning, sometimes it's afternoon, right Kyle Milroy, the latest edition of the Start On Demand. Today, we're going to try, try, try to explain to you what's going on in Great Britain with Brexit. Uh, BBC Audio from last week, one of their absolute biggest experts, most knowledgeable experts, would indicate that we're all in over our head if we're trying to figure it out. Jeff Semple will join us from London to try and sort it out. Uh, Tech stocks taking a pounding on the stock market the last couple of days, including Facebook. Part of the question and part of the reason for that may be that less people are using Facebook. Do you know anybody that's quit Facebook? We'll have coffee and chit-chat about that. You can join us, of course. And uh, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, they wrapped up their season on Sunday, as we know. Our last edition of Breakfast with the Bombers, Bob Irving and the head coach of your blue and gold, Mike O'Shea, and a package put together by our own Kelly Moore. We'll play and share that with you. The province... And the throne speech, Chris Adams, he's a professor of political science at the University of Manitoba, one of our go-to people when it comes to all things politics. We will get the insight from him at least as much as we can and tell you what the throne speech indicates, what the purpose is for the government and why they deliver it. And hazing, it's a big story out of Toronto. It's uh, sickening for a lot of people that this ritual continues, but... It does have its place, and there is a fine line between hazing and assault, initiation and hazing. We'll sort all that out with you with Dr. Norm Pollard. He authored, co-authored, in fact, one of the very first papers, research on hazing about 20 years ago. He joins us from Western New York. All that and a little bit more as we make our way through this edition of the Start On Demand. Let's get her going. Brexit. It's a convoluted, crazy process. The process is being described as disastrous and the deal won't pass UK Parliament. This according to a Scottish minister. Scotland's constitutional minister, Michael Russell, predicted yesterday the British government's Brexit deal would be defeated in the UK Parliament and said the Scottish government would do everything it could to ensure a, quote, common sense Alternative. He labeled the Brexit process as disastrous and said the British government was not interested in the views of the Scottish government or parliament. Now, Chris Mason is one of those financial experts the BBC turns to on a regular basis. And last week, he was at an absolute loss as to how to describe the process, the deal, and the agreement that's been made amongst Great Britain's uh, inner circle, in their, their caucus, so to speak. So, where are we in all of this Brexit process? You know what, people like me are paid, aren't we, to have insight and foresight and hindsight about these things and to be able to project where we're going to go. To be quite honest, looking at things right now, I haven't got the foggiest idea what is going to happen in the coming weeks. Is the Prime Minister going to get a deal with the EU? Don't know. Is she going to be able to get it through the Commons? 
Don't know about that either. I think you might as well get Mr Blobby back on to <laughs> offer his analysis, because frankly, I suspect his is now as good as mine. Oh, Chris Mason, don't do yourself down. <laughs> <laughs> that from BBC Breakfast uh, from last week. A little bit, well, the word I would use, Jeff Semple joining us from London now, would be exasperation on behalf of Chris Mason. Yeah, we're all feeling a little <laughs> unsure of ourselves these days, uh, Greg. Uh, a little bit of a crisis of confidence among some of the reporters here covering Downing Street, myself included. And that's because, you know, for months now, you and others have been asking us, you know, what's going to happen, Jeff? And, I, you know, we keep saying, oh, it'll, you know, it'll work out this way. And then it goes a completely different direction. I mean, I don't think anyone expected that we would be at this juncture at this point with just a few months to go before the Brexit deadline when the UK is officially, you know, making this official, making Brexit official on March 29th in 2019. But I'm with Chris. I, I Chris Mason, the BBC, I don't have the foggiest idea what's going to happen. <laughs> it's fun to be able to say foggiest, I think, at the very least. But Jeff, let's back up for a little bit if we can. And we're talking to our your bureau chief for Global National, Jeff Sample. Uh, for what What is this all about? I mean, how, how why should Canadians be paying attention to this? Why should we care? Right. Well, I mean, you know, the UK is one of the biggest economies in the world. Uh, one of our most important trading partners, certainly the European Union, is, is a huge deal for Canada. We just struck CETA, the, the big uh, landmark free trade agreement with the European Union. So our, you know, ease, certainly it's, it's safe to say that our economies are closely intertwined. So there's that. And of course, there's also, you know, can, I think a lot of Canadians have just been watching Brexit closely because of what Brexit represents, of course, the sort of breaking up of, of uh, you know, a decades old union and the rise of nationalism across the Western world. And I think, you know, this could go one of several ways, but, um, you know, which regardless of which way this goes, it will have huge consequences far uh, beyond the borders of the United Kingdom and of the European Union. And I think, you know, the EU is the world's trading bloc. It's about to lose one of its biggest members. The question is exactly how that's going to happen. Is one of those ways it could happen, Jeff? Could this deal die altogether? Could uh, Britain vote on this again in, in the, its most extreme outcome? Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> that's a question that a lot of people, certainly here in London, are asking. Because remember, London, like Scotland, as you alluded to off the top, you know, these are areas that voted, you know, far and away. They wanted to stay part of the European Union. So a lot of them are hoping that this might open the door to a, a do-over and, uh, you know, another Brexit vote. I have to say, frankly, it's, it's hard to see a path to, to that happening at this point. I think it's all but inevitable that the UK will leave the European Union. And that's just simply because, you know, the, the major players at this point aren't really talking about having another referendum. I mean, even the opposition party, the Labour Party that wants to bring Theresa May and her government down and basically start over on a new deal, even they aren't talking uh, in serious terms about having another referendum on whether to leave the European Union or not. So I don't think the chance of a redo is a real one, uh, but I do think there remain big questions in terms of what this Brexit could look like. I mean, you know, we have Theresa May, the British Prime Minister, who you know has just been getting having a really rough go of this, but she is right trying right now to promote a version of Brexit that would see the UK maintain 
you know, closer trade ties with the European Union than some people might have expected, what's sort of often called here a, a quote-unquote soft Brexit. Uh, but she is facing incredible opposition for that plan from members of her own party, the so-called Brexiteers, who say that her Brexit proposal does not go far enough. They want a much more extreme version of Brexit. And then there's the possibility, guys, that, you know, if they can't sort all of this out by March 29th, 2019, the deadline, it's very possible that the UK could leave the European Union without a deal in place, and that could have serious consequences. It's hard to know exactly what would happen, but basically the UK would default to WTO, World Trade Organization rules with the European Union, and you know they would go from having basically no borders and no tariffs with the world's largest trading bloc to suddenly having very serious ones, and that could have real repercussions for the economy here. It's a confusing process. It's also been a divisive one. And going back to 2016, when the referendum took place, 52% of those voted in favor of withdrawal or UK withdrawing from Europe. I'm curious now, Jeff, what people are saying and thinking. Is this all sort of the quagmire of this? You know, it ravels and unravels and gets more complicated. Is there still that divisiveness when it comes to how people just feel about this idea in general? Or have they moved past this and just kind of want to get this done? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And, you know, anecdotally, I can tell you that, you know, Brexit is all that anyone really talks about here. I mean, you hear people talking about it in the pubs and, and you know, at restaurants, out with their families. It remains extremely divisive. Having said that, uh, it's worth noting that, you know, over the past, you know, couple of years since all of this has been unfolding, we had seen in the public opinion polls this kind of, you know, classical British keep calm and carry on mentality where people who had voted to stay part of the European Union had basically become resolved to the fact that this was happening and so now let's just make the best of what they saw as a bad situation. However, in the past few weeks, those polls have sort of shifted again, in part probably because of all of the chaos of this process and the fact that there's no real, been very, you know, a lack of leadership, to be sure, uh, from the British government on this. They're so divided. And as a result, some of the polls that we've been seeing now suggest that a majority of the British public would like to call the whole thing off, uh, that if there were another referendum held today, uh, that the UK might vote to cancel the whole thing and, and remain part of the European Union. So the British public has been, you know, leaning a bit back and forth on this one, but I think it remains extremely divisive in, in, in very much the same way that I think Donald Trump is divisive in the United States. Brexit is divisive here in the UK. It has divided families, communities. Uh, and I think, you know, regardless of how this plays out, there are a lot of commentators talking about how the UK society will not be the same again because of this giant chasm running through the center of it. Well, change is coming one way or another. Jeff Semple, Europe Bureau Chief for Global National. Thanks very much for taking the time with us this morning. Great to talk to you. Thanks, guys. Jeff Semple, always great to get some time with him. And uh, when he's confused about something, I feel much better about being confused about it myself. Yeah, I love I think I'm going to just start saying, throwing that into my daily vernacular. I don't have the foggiest. I like that phrase. <laughs> I do. It's better with a British accent. I don't have the foggiest, but I can, I can make it work, I think. I'm Greg, she's Loren, Jeff Braun is here, Kelly Moore, Jeff Forche, and uh, mentioned it before the break, their stock was down almost 6% yesterday, Facebook. Uh, fears of regulation on the horizon with regard to the ads that they allow and the fake news, but a lot of people are getting frustrated with that fake news and the decorum or maybe lack thereof on Facebook. 
And lots of people are quitting Facebook and Twitter. Just in the last month, I've had three fr- very good friends decide they're pulling the plug. And another good friend on Twitter DM me, hey, send me your email address and your phone number because I am out. I'm done. And why? Because they're just tired of the discourse. And and it's it's not healthy. Someone called it yesterday the new smoking. That social media is the new smoking. It's it's That's not good. good for you. It's pretty good because you're not. You hear all the time. You're not supposed to check your, check your phone before bed because that's bad for sleeping. That it's bad for you know uh, personality disorders and narcissism and all the rest of posting pictures and selfies and stuff like that. But I don't know. I don't. I don't I'm not ready to walk. I get annoyed more by the ads that pop up and like as soon as you search something on your phone how that immediately then appears in your feed like yeah, yeah, that yeah. just freaks me out every time i understand it's all an algorithm or something but i don't like it and you swear sometimes it's like did it read my thoughts yes was i <laughs> I, 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 I was search? thinking i need to buy a new lamp and now all i get is ads for lamps right. in this thing right did i actually search that <laughs> yeah, or, I was like, and then, did i type it lamp in anywhere i've legitimately looked around the house sometimes <laughs> for the camera and been like are you watching me like it's funny it's watching you I know. It's watching you. I don't like it. it How closely, me I guess, is up for debate. I had a conversation with somebody here that uh, one of the apps on my phone wasn't working properly and it requires a microphone. They ran a report and they said, there's another application running the microphone in the background. Oh. So that got me a little nervous. Kelly? Well, you could make a comment like Dave Dickinson and then be in all kinds of trouble. <laughs> well, he, he made a comment on, like, national television. It's not the same as being in your home and quietly speaking into your phone. But well, I, I hear you. I, and again, I'm going to be at the risk of uh, Jeff Braun calling me an old uh, fossil, right. dinosaur, passe, whatever. But uh, I often look at uh, Facebook Instagram, Snapchat, and all the rest. It, it's more anti-social media than it is social media. It's just, it's mind-boggling these days uh, to watch people with their faces buried in their phones and no conversations are taking place, or, or very few. So, you know what, I, if people are dropping off, I... I think that's a good thing. I really do. Now, some of the conversations, like people, some people are in their phones because they are having, it's a text conversation, but it's a conversation. But Understood. So, the yeah. social media stuff is, is sometimes just scrolling through to yeah. spy on everybody else. It's garbage. Most like on my Facebook, well, Facebook's got that algorithm where nothing comes chronologically anymore. So you don't really know what you get. You're definitely not getting everything. And most people don't really have anything worth reading or looking at. So I've got, I would say, almost half of my Facebook friends muted. So I don't have to look at their stuff ever. Interesting. All I'm interested, I just I, all I'm interested in is uh, pictures of my nieces because they live far away and I yeah. never get to see them. And some other people that live far away that I just never get yeah. to see. And then jokes. That's all. I was looking for a good laugh. Jeff Forche, uh, you should be of that generation, not to generalize you or pigeonhole you in any way. It's well, he wasn't social- around the last time the Bombers won a Grey Cup. Yeah, so fair right. enough. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. that speaks for do, itself. Do you remember a life without the internet? Um, it's, it's somewhat. <laughs> I don't really know how to answer that. So I like, remember when it was uh, the old... <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Um, no, I, I find with my generation, uh, they're getting away from Facebook and we're going to Instagram. That's the big one for my generation. But I also do have a friend who's just not on so- social media at all. So for me, I'm I'm on Instagram, Facebook. How do you know when their birthday is? 
That, exactly. That's a really good point. Yeah, that, that is a great point. How can you wish someone you haven't seen since you were 17 a happy birthday? A heartfelt happy birthday. Oh, because you know. I don't care. <laughs> now, we just had a listener write in to say, Facebook is my scrapbook, so if it goes down... I would lose 10 years of my kids' baby books. And I think that's true for a lot of people. Uh, you mentioned your nieces. I think a lot yeah. of people are using it as a way to share their you lives. You should back that up, though. If, if Facebook is the only <laughs> place you've got your precious memories, you should then at least. Then you have, yeah, yeah. You have some homework to do. Yeah. I think that the the bottom line is more a conversation about phones, not social media. And it's not all bad. Like, there are times where you see heartwarming stories, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook. I'm not on Instagram. But but I'm guessing that's the case as well. And then you see, you know, things like GoFundMe pages, organized searches, and and that type of thing. So there are positives. I guess it's just which way you want to focus your attention. For the last time this year, it was kind of a unique arrangement for the final Bomber Coaches Show of 2018 on Monday night. Mike O'Shea was in studio while Bob Irving was in Edmonton and remains there preparing to cover his 46th consecutive Great Cup week for 680 CJOB. And after reviewing the season-ending 22-14 loss to Calgary in the Western Final, Bob wanted to dig deeper into the comment made by Stampeders head coach Dave Dickinson on the sidelines during the first quarter of that game. First of all, here's that audio that has caught the attention of a lot of football fans across the country, not just here in Winnipeg. Loren yeah, was a little nervous that I didn't beep out. I was, I was like, please tell me you remembered to bleep out the F-bomb there. Yeah, yes. so yes, as you might have guessed, there was an F-bomb bleeped out. Uh, Bob Irving, uh, one of his most liked and shared tweets he's ever had. Not everybody agreed with him that Dave Dickinson owed an apology to football fans and the Winnipeg Football Club. Here is Bob and head coach Mike O'Shea in conversation about that outburst caught on microphone from Dave Dickinson. Everybody who follows this league is talking about it. Dave Dickinson, the coach of the Stampeders, was caught on camera uh, yelling at the referees over a certain call, and some of the words that came out were O'Shea, and then an expletive, and then Canadians. So O'Shea bleep Canadians. So it sounded like Dave Dickinson was upset with the officials, in that he felt maybe Mike O'Shea was influencing him. I don't know. I'm just I'm guessing. And the Canadian reference, uh, and I tweeted that I thought that was unfair and that he should apologize, and he did apologize this morning. Uh, Mike, your thoughts on the whole scenario. Were you bothered by it? Yeah, I was. Um, I've addressed it with them, and, and, and now, honestly, let's not take away from, from uh, you know, the Grey Cup, which is – the greatest weekend I think in Canada, right? So let's let them get at their business and and I don't want let's not be any distraction. He's got enough to worry about. Well he won't be a distraction here in Edmonton, but just to just to kind of get one final comment on it from you, he said today in his explanation that the Stampeders refer to certain teams with a word. And the bombers are known uh, around the league to a degree, as the Canadian Mafia by the other teams because you have a Canadian CEO in Wade Miller, a Canadian GM in Kyle Walters, and a Canadian coach in Mike O'Shea. 
and the reference is not a necessarily a, der- a derogatory one, Mike. It's just the way you're referred to. Your group is referred to. Uh, that was his explanation. Do you buy that? As I said, uh, you know, I think things get said in the heat of the moment. I'm him and I have already chatted about it. So, so it's I, over. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter what I buy or don't buy. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You're, so you're moving past it. Uh, yeah. Um. Uh, you know. Like I said, I, I, I can't, as much as I'm disappointed about um, not playing and disappointed for our guys, um, I also believe that uh, there's a lot of great fans across this country that can't wait for this game and are excited about the whole thing. So I, all these all these other stories that detract from the actual contest uh, should be, you know, we should drop them. Yeah, but this is a good, juicy story, Mike. (laughs) Every time he has those long pauses, Greg, you know, where you can tell he's choosing his words carefully, you're like, just say it, Mike, say it. Tell (laughs) us what you're really thinking. (laughs) Okay, so apparently we're going to turn the focus to next year and the challenges involved for the various management staffs of teams with a large majority of CFL players that are all headed for free agency in February. The way the rules are in the league now, and you can't pay bonuses right now to players, a lot of these guys are going to wind up going to free agency, or so it seems. And and players like Santos Knox are going to get some, probably get some pretty big offers. Does this kind of tie your hands, your club's hands a little bit because you can't really get aggressive right now? Yeah, I think those are more questions for Kyle, you know. Um, yeah, but you know what's going on. Yeah, with that whole I thing. do. I think if the CBA is in question right now and players aren't signing and the CFL maybe doesn't want people signing or there's no signing bonuses when you sign, like I think there are a lot of hoops to jump through before we even get to that point where we're signing free agents. I, I don't know exactly what's come down from the CFL in terms of the memos that would be sent to the uh, to the executives or to the GMs, let's say, that would dictate how they conduct their business to, to start the offseason. Having said that, it's interesting with with the high volume of free agents, obviously you won't be able to sign them all. You never can in an offseason. And if you lose one to uh, uh, another team with a higher bid, there's going to be some good football players that sort of end up on the outside looking in at some point, mm-hmm. right? So um, with all this movement, there do, does create, you know, some people that are that are available. So you lose a good one, there's a good one out there somewhere. Quite possibly. The fact is you don't want to lose your own guys. Right. You know, yeah. We know yeah. them the best and we like them for a reason. It is a business and they do have to make um, sometimes, I think, very tough decisions for the players as much as the... It would like to be told in the media that it was an easy decision because the money was was a greater uh, influence. There's still tough decisions for the players. The players, really, a lot of them want to be in the same place for their entire career. They understand that that's very difficult to do, and they understand that that's something that um, a lot of them would like to do. So they are tough decisions, but the business does enter into it, and. I think as the offseason goes along, we'll see how it all plays out, but it's not going to be an easy offseason in that regard. And from a coaching perspective, O'Shea would certainly like to keep his staff intact for 2019. That's my plan. I try to, I'm going to try to do that for sure. I think the continuity is is very important. You will have a salary cap for the, so, uh, the coaches and uh, the football personnel people 
next season. Will that create any issues for you? Well, it's the first time with one, so um, yep. I don't. I think we we don't know what we don't know just yet. You know, Wade's extremely organized, and he'll have it well thought out and planned out, and and we'll sit down and and go through this very shortly and get moving on it. But uh, yeah, it's if it's something that's going to be league wide, then we're all on the same playing field. So it'll be a busy off season, but as Coach O'Shea commented, the attention now needs to be on Sunday's Grey Cup game between Calgary and Ottawa. And Bob Irving will provide his usual outstanding coverage all week long on 680 CJOB with reports on 25 after the hour sports, as well as guest appearances with Christian O'Mell on the CJOB Sports Show and hopefully one or two visits with us here on the start, Loren. Yeah, it's always a fun week. It'd be much more fun if we were in it, obviously, but here we are. Rafkis with the Bombers is brought to you by the Cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca, a better place for you. Question of the day is brought to you by Mr. Furness. Don't call them first. You'll see why. Call Mr. Furness. 204-832-6243. I had to call my Furness guy Did you? yesterday, too. So... Anyway, all to all the furnace people out there who are making sure we stay warm when it's cold, thank you very much. I'm Greg. She's Loren. Brett's back Thursday. Small town just north of Winnipeg is grieving this morning, trying to come to grips with the loss of a young woman who was killed in what witnesses are describing as a hail of bullets, fired at them as they drove down a road near Fraserwood, Manitoba. And that community is about 80 kilometers north of Winnipeg and west of Gimli. And witnesses to that shooting, and, and there were more than witnesses, they were, they were part of it being shot at, allegedly shot at. They described it uh, like a scene out of a movie, except for that scene was very real and it took the life of one of their friends. Here's Global's Joe Scarpelli with more. It was a night out like any other for Sean Stefishin and friends until a fight broke out at this bar in Fraserwood. Witnesses tell Global News a dispute erupted between a 23-year-old man and others in the bar. Everyone was kicked out, the bar closed, and Sean Stefishin started driving down this road to a friend's house. It sounded like the gun was in my truck. So I knew he hit my truck. As Stefishin and two other cars traveled down the road, they saw a man with a rifle standing on the side beside his vehicle. They say the gunman opened fire on three cars as they drove by. Shot one shot. My phone rang. Brandon was calling me. I said, I'm getting shot at. He said, I got shot at. Haley's hit. Haley Duguay, the 20-year-old victim, was rushed to hospital but died of gunshot wounds. Nick Wachinski has lived in Fraserwood all his life. He says everyone is in disbelief. Scared even to go out or something. You don't know if anybody's going to go buy a shoot or something. You don't know what's going to go on. RCMP said the suspect fled the scene. The Winnipeg Police K-9 unit and Air One helped the RCMP locate the suspect, and he was taken into custody. 23-year-old Jesse Pollock is charged with second-degree murder and seven counts of attempted murder. Joe Scarpelli, Global News, in Fraserwood. So Sean Stefishin is one of the fellows you heard of in that story. He was friends with the victim uh, for the past five or six years and really close friends to her boyfriend. And uh, you could just, we're going to play some more audio from him later in the show, but you can really hear it in his voice. He's still trying to kind of, A, he he lost someone that was close to him, but then just being part of that, you could tell has really taken its toll. And and they've described Duguay, Haley, as caring, outgoing, always smiling. She worked in a daycare in the area, so there's going to be kids that will be missing her this morning as well, not to mention her own family. Um, As for the suspect, he has been charged with second-degree murder, seven counts of attempted murder. He appears in court this morning. This could have... Oh, 
had multiple deaths. As, as Sean was saying, you know, at the end, you don't know if the suspect's intentions were just to scare them. You know, maybe the goal was just to shoot at the trucks, and, and, but you're firing a weapon. And as he said, you know, at the end of the day, someone's dead, and it could have been anyone. In his, in his mind, it could have been anyone going down that road. It's not clear what, what the motive was or the goal, and that will, of course, all work its way through the courts as the alleged uh, suspect, you know, makes his appearances over the next few months. But wow. If you live in rural Manitoba, we'd like to hear from you, quite frankly. McNabb at cjob.com, Mackling at cjob.com. Do you, do you feel less safe right now? We've had this story from Fraserwood. We had two homicides in Selkirk in eight days. We spoke to the folks in Brandon. The police there telling people, lock it up, sending out social media messages at 9 o'clock to, to lock up your belongings, a reminder that things are not as safe as they used to be. Do you feel less safe if you live outside the perimeter highway? Well, if you're a special interest group, if, you, if you're in a union, if you work for any of the Crown Corporations in Manitoba, hospitals, schools, uh, you're going to have your eyes on the legislature this afternoon uh, where the government, the Conservatives, will outline their agenda for their coming year in their speech from the throne. And by the way, if you hear what sounds like gunfire around 1 o'clock this afternoon or see some smoke around the legislature, don't be alarmed. It's likely from the annual ceremonial salute that precedes that speech from the throne. Of course, the past two years with Conservatives have already seen a lot of change, including that massive overhaul to Winnipeg's emergency room system. But what's to come in the year ahead? Christopher Adams is a political scientist with St. Paul's College. He's also written several books on politics in Manitoba and joins us on the phone now. Good morning, Chris. Hi, Loren. Thanks for having me with you. Well, I want to, what's the theme do you think we'll get or hear is, you know, often there's these buzzwords. I think last year the government talked about just wanting to do better, which seemed vague in some ways, but that was the word, the better Manitoba. What do we expect to hear from them this afternoon? Yes, and and uh, as you spoke about earlier uh, in your show today, Lauren, um, it, it won't be with uh, specifics like numbers and in, in terms of dollars, but it really is a window into the priorities of the premier and his government. I expect to, to hear more from uh, um, them through the lieutenant governor's uh, speech on fiscal retra- restraint, uh, low taxes. I expect to see some announcements regarding infrastructure. Um, I think there'll be something regarding gender issues, especially in, in the, uh, um, uh, as a result of following up on the Cliff Graydon situation in the caucus with him being uh, sent out of caucus and sitting as an independent. So I think Pallister will be signaling some, some things on that. But I also see uh, probably some, some uh, reference to education reform. I'm thinking in terms of the schooling system. Um, probably some, some cuts maybe in hospitals and in rural areas. So there'll be there'll be statements about what the priorities are, are of the government. And we have to remember we're in midstream right now between two elections, the last one being 2016 and the next one in 2020. So I think they're, they're going to be starting to think about the, the upcoming election and moving towards that on their promises. You mentioned infrastructure, uh, Chris, and that has been something that a lot of people feel has been sorely missing. Is there Anything that might be missing from this speech from the throne that people were hoping to hear a little bit of a tidbit from from the government? I, I don't have any inside knowledge of, of uh, what's what's being written in the throne speech, as you can imagine, Greg. But but I, I do expect something regarding uh, highways, uh, maybe something regarding bridges. You know, sort of the meat and potato type type uh, uh, thing. Um, as as 
you had said during your introduction, the um, there'll be interest groups looking to see what's in this throne speech. One thing I'm particularly interested in is the indigenous population as well as Métis people and how, how they're going to be um, uh, mentioned in this throne speech. As you know, right now, there almost seems to be open warfare between the MMF, David Chartrand, the president, and, uh, and the premier. And I'm wondering how they're going to stick handle uh, that issue going into the coming year. Yeah, the Manitoba Métis Federation has certainly been quite vocal about that relationship and whether or not it's it's been a good one. And the answer, as far as they're concerned, is it hasn't been a good one, Chris. And, and depending on what side you sit on, you might feel like you don't hear enough in this speech today, or you might feel like you're getting just the, hitting the right tone. It really comes down to mm-hmm. the words being used. You mentioned cuts uh, or possible cuts or changes in health care in rural Manitoba, changes to the school system. The government's going to try to sell those or at least use the words as more of efficiencies, creating a more efficient streamlined That's system. Right. That's right. That's the language. Fiscal restraint, but but really efficiencies. Um, they'll also make reference to the the reviews that have that are being done in certain areas. Um, I can't remember the details, but there are a number of reviews underway right now for for uh, return on investments or in terms of of uh, um, are is is the is the uh, province getting its money's worth in certain areas. And one of the areas I know we we've heard about is cancer care, Manitoba, and, and the upcoming review. So, um, but if you look back at the beginning of this year, you know, when he was interviewed, the premier was interviewed by, by the media, including Brittany Greenslade of Global, um, Pallister was committing for this year to the PST cut by the end of his first term, and he was hinting at rural hospital closures and education cuts. So um, we still have to see, you know, how those things are going to be uh, working their way through in the coming year. Well, one of the tenuous rep- relationships is between Manitoba Hydro and the government. That's right. Might we get some clarity uh, about where that relationship is going today, Chris? Well, uh, we hope so. Um but you know, uh, uh, you know the the question went before Pallister was elected was, uh, what will they do with hydro? Hydro's uh, um, uh, continuing uh, fiscal issues uh, seem to be worsening with with each year, and you wonder if they're going to be making some announcement about so, something major with hydro along the lines of maybe what the Ontario government did with its hydro. So, um, you know, with each throne speech, we look to see what, what are the announcements, and, and uh, um, but I haven't heard anything behind the scene. Well, that important reminder that today is really about just sort of setting the stage. It's not really about making those specific announcements. So we'll hear more. We'll hear a little bit today, but we'll hear more in the days and weeks to come. Uh, Chris Adams is a political science with St. Paul's College. And I thank you very much, Christopher, for joining us this morning. Thanks, Lorraine. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Christopher Adams, uh, always great to get access uh, to him and to get his insight. And, you know, everybody wants uh, the inside scoop. It's becoming increasingly more difficult to get that inside scoop, has it not, Loren? Well, it, uh, it depends on who you ask, you know, and who, and who we're getting access to and who can ask the questions that we want to ask to them. And so after today, there'll be, a, there'll be opportunity to speak to the Premier and see what more he wants to divulge in terms of what the agenda is for the Conservatives. But yeah, I think it's been challenging in some respects to get those specifics on, okay, well, what's next? Give us a date. When is that happening? I, specifically, let's think about, say, that meth strategy we've been waiting for and what they're going to do to tackle the meth crisis in this province. And we were told 
uh, stay tuned, Manitoba. It's coming in a matter of weeks. Well, that was well over a month ago. So where are those details? Are we going to get some of that today or, or is that still to come? Do we typically have to wait for the budget to get details? Well, is sh- that the most detail that we get at any point in a administration's term? Yeah, yes and no. It's where you know how much things are going to cost. But, you know, I can think to, you know, even in, in this government's first first year, you know, they had a speech to the throne, talked about doing better for Manitoba, making efficiencies, making changes. And then it was several months later that suddenly that we learned all the changes that were coming to the ER. You know, the, the, those aren't always outlined in specifics in a speech from the phone and or in the budget. The budget might say we're planning to spend less on something. How? Where are those cuts going to come from? What are we going to be losing or winning with? To start this hour, Loren, we're going to Toronto. Yeah, and what do you think about the allegations there of six boys charged with alleged group sexual assault at St. Michael's College. Police warning that there could even be more incidents and more possible victims. This started as a hazing allegation and has quickly escalated. And it's not only made headlines across the country. We have really heard about it. I've, I've seen headlines in the UK, Europe, New Zealand, all talking about how this has really shocked Canada. As alarming as they might be, Dr. Norm Pollard says they're far more common than you might think. He actually ran one of the, co-authored one of the first studies into hazing in the United States about 20 years ago. He's even been brought in to do consulting. And he joined us earlier from his home in upstate New York. And we started our conversation with him just as a reminder to everybody, what exactly is hazing? Hazing is any humiliating, degrading, or dangerous act expecting of an individual to join a club or group regardless of their willingness to participate. Why have we been so casual to accept this as a part of either high school, university, or or sport life, and does it happen elsewhere? Uh, it happens in any group that kids join. So regardless if it's the band, the honor society, church group, or athletics, there's this need for rites of passage, initiation, students trying to prove their worthiness to join a group, and when you have those elements involved, there's a potential for hazing. You mentioned it's a need to sort of uh, initiate the person or for the on the other side, that person to feel like they belong. And you sort of just everyone goes, oh, yeah, well, that's what happens when you join that team. But but it can be particularly violent, dangerous and, and, and criminal. Absolutely. And, you know, keep in mind the individuals that perpetrate this violence, oftentimes for victims themselves the year before that they went through it, and so what they try to do is to validate or rationalize the, the violence against them by inflicting it onto someone else and calling it a tradition. Unfortunately, what they also tend to do is ratchet up a notch, make it a little bit more dangerous, a little bit more humiliating, in order, to again, to validate the worthiness and, and the necessity of that you know, warped tradition to join that club or team. Do you think it's more important for the initiated or the initiators, this 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 warped tradition? Well, I think as the case of, of any abuser, uh, that's how they rationalize and cope with the pain that has been inflicted on them. You know, it's not unusual to have someone that was a victim of child abuse become the abuser, someone that's uh, witnessed spousal abuse engaged in that same behavior. So I I think there's this piece where people need to validate their own past experience. But 
we, our youth are, are really needing some sort of rite of passage, some sort of validation that belonging to that group has special meaning and, meaning and influence in their life. The worst thing for especially adolescent and high school age students is not to be in a group, not to be part of the team, not to be accepted. So they're willing to do sometimes anything to feel like they're special and part of this, this organization. And that is through a lack of something, whether it be at home, or is this an overall uh, sociological or psycho, uh, psychological need on the behalf uh, of teenagers, regardless of their background? Yeah, it's regardless of their background, because there's no difference in the demographic of rural, urban, rich, poor, by ethnicity. It, it's really a universal need to belong be part of a group, to feel as though that your identity is built upon participation in something that makes you unique and special. Uh, you know, the, and the, the challenge, too, is that often the group that they're gravitating to, it might be the only junior hockey team. It might be the only um, uh, debate team. It might be the only band. So they're, they're pushed into a corner saying, I really belong to this group and I really want to be part of it. But in order to do so, I may need to engage in behavior that doesn't reflect the values of my of my family, of my community. So how do we beat this back? It sounds sort of like a vicious cycle. If it happened to me, therefore I do it to the next person who makes the team or the band or debate club. Well, it, it goes back to to students needing a rite of passage and initiation. So we as an adult need to be actively involved in helping them acquire positive and beneficial rites of passage, uh, that we can't abdicate it to the coach, to the administrator, that we as, as parents, as community members, need to help the, the team building within that organization. Uh, you know, it, it's not you know, uh, simply, you know, doing something new age or, you know, uh, kumbaya moment. It's really finding a way that they can prove, oftentimes through physical activity, through some sort of arduous involvement, sometimes community service, sometimes, you know, uh, going on different types of adventures. But so they find meaning in that group, but the group doesn't resort to humiliation, degradation, and, and dangerousness in order to welcome new members, that they collaborate together to have a powerful team and team bonding experience. That's Dr. Pollard, who's the dean of students at Alfred University in Upper State, New York. He's also a consultant. He's been brought into a number of schools over the years to help students cope post-hazing incidents, but he also really wants to more prevent those hazing incidents and the violent hazing incidents from happening. His biggest point is that what happens in the locker room does not stay there. One of the things I always remind folks is that if we don't take the the initiative now to help these young people, they will take that lesson into the future. We call it from going from the locker room to the boardroom. If they learn this lesson about power and abuse, they'll take it into their relationships, into being a parent, into being a coach, into being, you know, a boss. And so by helping now this generation not to be abusers, we end up having a better future for all of us. I thought that was an excellent point about the extension of that. Where does it go beyond here if we just ignore it or allow it to happen or don't talk to kids about the idea that what you're doing may may have been a tradition 
in your club or your school for years, but doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it and decide, is that a good one now? Well, yeah, we talk about the cycle of violence uh, prevailing in, in families and intergenerational cycles when it comes to violence and abuse. And, and this definitely, definitely follows that same general pattern. It happened to me, and so I'm not necessarily going to do it for sure, but there's a higher risk, a higher likelihood of me perpetrating this on other people because it happened to me. And if you're an adult out there that's aware of that, and that's the question in Toronto today, how much do teachers, principals, schools, coaches, all the rest know that this may have been happening far more than this one time, and, and why weren't they talking about it? That's Loren McNabb. I'm Greg Mackling. Brett McGarry will be back on Thursday. It's the start.